Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Could regularly random testing students for COVID-19 help control the outbreaks in schools? A new study says yes. We'll give you the details. Prime Minister Trudeau says Canada and other U.S. allies are looking to President-elect Joe Biden to re-engage with the world. What do we hope comes from this re-engagement with global circles? Well, we'll give you all the details on that. And the police do not have the power to stop drivers solely to enforce the new stay-at-home order here in Ontario. Superintendent Will Mason of Hamilton Police Service joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we know, this was the week that uh, elementary school kids and high school kids uh, in this area were supposed to go back to school, and they didn't uh, because of the lockdown situation. There's going to be a reassessment in a couple of weeks about that. One of the things, though, that keeps coming back here is our kids actually asymptomatic are kids really vectors for this or are the lower numbers and there are lower numbers in in a lot of the schools a true indication that uh, that maybe kids aren't the problem at all well one of the best ways to solve that is testing and uh, we asked the education minister Stephen Lecce about that a couple of weeks ago and uh, he said well they've got a policy that they think is going to work the risk profile has obviously escalated and so should our investments in our plan what, what, what Ontarians and parents out there could expect is asymptomatic testing, surveillance testing in all regions, all public health units of Ontario for when these kids go back day one. Well, uh, there's a debate as to whether or not that's even effective the way things have gone in the last little while, uh, which is why we found uh, this report uh, that we're about to talk about so refreshing. Regular random testing students for COVID-19 could actually help control the outbreaks in schools and allow them to remain open. This is a study that's uh, involved in the University of Guelph. Uh, one of the folks involved in the study, Dr. Monica Kojikaro, is a professor of mathematics with the University of Guelph, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Good morning. Well, this is such a, a, an important issue, and, and, you know, we want to get it right. It's our kids. It's our kids' well-being. Uh, and it's also, I think, one of the main factors in what's going on with COVID-19. And we're, we're still looking for answers about the spread and the impact that this is having on elementary schools. And I guess the inverse of that is probably true, isn't it, Doctor? We want to find out what the impact of elementary schools is on, on the spread of the virus as well. Uh, talk to us about your research and what you've come up with here. Um, yes, um, thank you very much. Um, so um, our research uh, is a collaboration uh, between uh, two of my colleagues at the York University, uh, Professor Ali Asghari, who is um, in um, disaster and emergency management, and uh, Professor of Mathematics, Dr. Zhang Hongwu, and, and some of our uh, trainees. So um, we came together uh, as a Ontarians, you know, concerned Ontarians, uh, educators at universities, and also in our personal roles of, uh, as parents, like any one of us with kids in schools and various levels in school. Um, and so we really wanted to, to try and, and devise a model that would serve both as a uh, testing bed and also to inform policy on this issue, specifically on, on testing. Now, so far, uh, of course, testing has been used um, throughout 2020 to try and essentially uh, decide whether a possibly symptomatic individual was infected or not. I think we are definitely at the stage where we have enough capacity, enough supply chain, enough types of tests that we can use testing as a preventive measure. So not as a reaction measure, as a as a preventive. So. 
Our model is um, my colleagues at, at York University have devised this uh, very sort of detailed type of uh, mathematical model and simulation, which really simulates every student uh, in, in a potential um, in a virtual classroom with teachers and everything else. And we were looking at a school of 500 students um, and the associated much smaller population of teachers. And I have provided the so-called theoretical validation for this very computational model. And this was a very happy uh, marriage between the numerical side and the theoretical side. So in a nutshell, what we're, what we're proposing is... Um, in order to catch asymptomatic but also pre-symptomatic individuals. So the pre-symptomatic are the ones who get infected, but they don't really have symptoms yet. So that may take, depending on the person, a few days. Um, so if we catch these um, kids and, and also staff, um, that would be great because then we can, we can advise them to isolate. So what we are saying in a nutshell is that if we randomly um, – but repeatedly test um, a, a few students in every class, as few as one, for instance, in a class of 25 students um, uh, per day, um, that, that which is about, you know, not a large number in, like, in between 600, 900 tests, say, um, uh, in that school of, say, supposedly 500 students in 25 students' classrooms. So we can keep things under control. I should say that keeping things under control, it very much depends of where we are right now in the level of community transmission. And Minister Lecce, of course, is right uh, in a sense that um, uh, at the moment, the community transmission is so high right, in, throughout, throughout uh, our province, that keeping things at the level where we are now, it's not desirable. So since we are already in the situation, we are already in this big second lockdown since last spring, I think it's the proper time for government and decision makers and public health um, across the province to really look at really changing gears a little bit in terms of the testing policy and, and use testing policy as another tool in the toolbox in trying to, to contain and, and avoid further spread of infections. Well, and, and that's one of the things I found intriguing about that when I was reading uh, the overview of, of the work that you've done here, Doctor, is, uh, is, is we, what essentially you're asking here to do is to be proactive as opposed to reactive uh, to what we're finding Correct. out here. I mean, I, I hate to use a hockey analogy, but we're Canadians, right? Uh, you know, we've been yes. playing defense. <laughs> we're playing defense way too long here. We, we're not attacking this virus. We're reacting to it. And, and, and this, is a, this is a different mindset that you're taking here. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's a mindset that, of course, um, you know, we should recognize that um, this, this is possibly, this is now possible because, of course, we have advanced our knowledge about the virus. We've advanced our knowledge about the types of tests. We've advanced very much the logistics and the supply chains of providing the tests. So we are, I think, now at a, at a, good juncture, not good in a sense that we're yet again in lockdown, but we're in a good spot to take advantage of this stringent lockdown, which will hopefully bring our community transmission down. And then from, the, from here on to really, as you say, uh, play offensive rather than defensive. Um, yes. 
So to, the way this is going to work then, obviously, is, is with these testing. Is, as you say, uh, because of the incubation period, somebody could actually be uh, a carrier, and, uh, but we wouldn't be able to know that until they start showing symptoms. Right. Or they may never show symptoms, as, as you Correct. mentioned. I mean, we, we know that a lot of kids can be asymptomatic. Uh, this pretty much well, it doesn't eliminate the doubt, but it certainly mitigates the impact, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, you can think about it this way. Um, instead of us worrying about schools being um, a focal points for outbreaks, we can use the school's environment where our kids spend so much time during the day as a dampener for community transmission. Because what usually happens, if it, if it is true that, and I think a lot of experts tend in that direction, um, that a lot of kids are asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic, so mild that we don't really think much about it, right, as parents, um, then what happens is they, they carry it, they transmit it, they don't see a lot of, a lot of uh, bad uh, reactions to, to, for themselves, but they go back into the family, right? And mm-hmm. it's transmitted into the family, into the family home, sometimes transmitted to, to grandparents and so on. So that's where, it, it, you know, it can potentiate the community transmission. If we, if we uh, implement a proactive, repetitive um, uh, testing to try and catch asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic carriers in schools, then we, we literally use schools as a dampener right, um, in the larger community transmission. And I think this could be an important aspect as well in, in switching gears in the policy. Well, absolutely it could. And, and, and again, just so our listeners understand, basically what th- this is talking about here is testing uh, three students a day in every class in, in, in an average-sized school like this uh, and getting these determinations. And, but you also put some corollaries in this, including, of course, wearing face masks, which a lot of boards mm-hmm. have adopted and the province has talked about doing as well. But the, the projections I see here, doctors, you figured uh, that if the protocol is followed, including the masking and, of course, uh, the testing that's, as you're requesting, uh, that you're talking about reducing transmission from anywhere from 30 to 80 percent. That's significant. It is very significant. It is very significant. And, and um, as you said, the government has already mandated back in September when, when, uh, when schools have opened. Remember, uh, they were talking about the cohorting. So, so kids in a class will basically tend to only hang out or have contacts with other kids in their own class. Right. So not mm-hmm. so much of the open breaks and open um, uh, recreation times where everybody could sort of play with everybody else. So that is generally implemented throughout uh, the school boards. Mask wearing is implemented uh, in many, if not all, the school boards. So we already have these measures in place and they're very good. And so when we consider these extra measures, which kids have already learned to live with and they seem to be doing fine, my son included is in third grade, so I have direct knowledge of all these (laughs) policies. Um, So they seem to be working. And when we took this into consideration, it actually, let me put a clear image in, 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 in in all of our heads. Let's say you have your teacher and you have 25 kids in the class. If we test one child per day in every class, then we can keep things under control, as, as I said in, in the beginning, assuming the community transmission goes yeah. to the lower level that we desire. That's not a lot. 
that can be done. I know we know there are resources, and as the minister uh, just said in the intro to our interview, um, they are thinking of of doing asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic uh, testing, and that's great to hear. I think what we do extra in that direction, we provide them uh, a way to do this, a very organized way to do this, and. Um, of course, your your listeners may may feel like, well, this seems to involve logistics. Yes, it does. Unfortunately, we have to be, be better at logistics just overall. I mean, vaccine distribution is yet another big logistics problem. We can do this. We have the resources. We can pull together. Um, so I don't I don't see why this would not be at least, and if not immediately implemented, it can be piloted. Right in in a few uh, high oh, schools, sure. for instance, yeah. Well, and there's, I guess, one of the challenges that that's not really in your wheelhouse. I mean, you've done the work on this. You've done all the legwork and, and the research on this. Uh, what we need now is the political will to actually implement something like this. There's going to be a cost. Correct. And as you say, we, we, we have the technology. It's just a matter of whether or not the gear, you know, the, the boards and certainly the Ministry of Education wants to gear it towards that and, and look at this as a as an idea uh, that, that whose I think is, is it's well worth the merit and, and worth considering in something like this because uh, it it pretty much addresses the debate that we've been having here with the province for the last couple of months now, Doctor, is is essentially, you know, when we see high numbers of cases in the community, is it because of what's going on in the schools, or are there higher numbers in the schools because of what's going on in the community? This way here, it says it doesn't much matter. We're going to identify it and deal with it right there. Exactly. Deal with it right there. Make sure that the schools are as safe as we, as we can possibly make them, and remove that possible contribution from, say, having outbreaks in the school and take them back to families and then families, you know, transmitting them, you know, further down in the community. So we at least have a chance to, we, we need to start somewhere, right? When you play offensive, when you we want to get ahead of the her- curve, you have to start somewhere. Clearly, just relying on various, you know, social distancing and mask wearing sure. and, and various levels of lockdown, it works sometimes. Now with the fall and with various variants of the virus may not work as well. So we need to add extra tools. And may I point out for, for you and also for the viewers, this, you know, our model can be, and my colleagues of York, um, I'm sure they can do this, um, the, this, this individual simulated environment, um, it doesn't have to be applied just to schools. It could apply to a manufacturing plant. Oh, sure. It yeah. could apply to any other facility where we need workers or essential workers to congregate and do their jobs, but in a possibly safer way, right? Well, we've hit the pause button here because of the lockdown, and and I guess there's going to be a reassessment in the early part of February. We get that, but if 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 after that we just continue to do the same things we were doing before the lockdown and expecting a different result, well, wasn't that's one of the definitions of insanity, isn't it? I mean, uh, this is an opportunity for us to revisit this and reevaluate what we're doing, and and what you're offering mm-hmm. here and your and your compatriots are offering here is a, is an alternative, and I think a very viable alternative to say that we can gather data much more quickly and much more accurately let's look at mm-hmm. this during this during this lockdown and maybe if we go back to school on the 11th or 12th let's start doing this 
Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we can start doing this and really, but, and really, you know, start at least start piloting it. I know uh, there was a pilot program in the Toronto school board in December where, if I understood correctly, I saw it in the press at large. Uh, if I understood what they're doing, um, they tested, mass tested several schools, so the, all That's the right, school yeah. population, um, which was good because actually in one of the schools they caught a, a big cluster of of, of uh, uh, either pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic cases, so about 20 or so students. So that was great. So that 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 is a fantastic idea. Um, and I I saw also in the press at large and possibly what the minister was re- referring to in the intro that they are really looking at perhaps expanding this type of pilot program, which would be great. the The problem is that you know testing is a snapshot in time. So, so you can you can mass test a school and take a snapshot of where they are at that time. But of course, the virus evolves in time, and so the repeated testing type of modeling that that my colleagues and I propose um, has the advantage of you being on the ball, so to speak, every day. Exactly. Right? You you have you have a, a, a maybe a smaller snapshot in the terms of numbers of how many kids uh, you you test but you have it consistently every day right so and, Doctor, and this that is very yeah. encouraging we're just about out of time here i i, I yeah. want to stay in touch with you on this and see how the government responds over the next little while uh but i think this is this is something that i think the government really needs to pay attention to i thank you and congratulate you on the great work that you and your colleagues have done and uh, let's let's hope that the government's watching and listening Thank you, and thank you very much for having us and for, for promoting our ideas. They're not right out there. They're not far out. Uh, they are within our reach, so hopefully um, decision makers are listening. Thank you. I hope you. so. Thanks again, Doctor. Take care. Dr. Monica Kojikaru from uh, the University of Guelph. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There will be lots of change on the international political level, of course, uh, as of next Wednesday when uh, Joe Biden is uh, inaugurated as the President of the United States. A great deal of anticipation about the impact that that's going to have on the international scene especially in light of the impact that Donald Trump has had on the international scene uh, as his role as President of the United States over the last little while. There have been concerns about NATO, about the G7, about uh, global politics, about the environment and things of this nature. And uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talked about that the other day during an interview with Reuters news agency and uh, suggested that he's looking forward to meeting with the President-elect to discuss a number of these issues. It's very much a tradition that the Canadian Prime Minister and U.S. President are, uh, are meet uh, very quickly uh, uh, to be able to talk about all the tremendous things that uh, we can do together. Obviously, the incoming administration uh, is committed to doing something that is extremely important to me, which is acting on climate change. So I think there's uh, an opportunity to talk about that, but also an opportunity to talk about all the things we can do uh, multilaterally in the world. Uh, there is a need for a, a re-engage United States in in global circles, and I look forward to digging into it with with the President Elect Biden when the time comes. So, what's going to happen, especially to Canada-U.S. relations? But of course, there's going to be an impact on that globally as well. Joining us to talk about this is Jason Opel, associate professor and chair in the Department of History and Classical Studies at McGill University. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us here today. Oh, my pleasure. 
All right, as of Wednesday, the big bad man in the White House is going to be gone, and, and uh, uh, there is an expectation, I think, in some circles that, well, all Canada's problems are going to go away then and everything is going to be fine uh, with a Biden administration. Uh, the, there's certainly some positive indicators about the relationship between the two countries, but uh, give us your read, if you could, about how things are going to develop and, and what we can expect. Yeah, I think, you know, very broadly, uh, the Prime Minister is, you know, correct to be basically optimistic. Um, at a very basic level, what the Biden administration will mean is greater predictability. So the big one big thing about the Trump um, administration, and, and I use the word administration somewhat guardedly there, yeah. is they don't do a lot of administering. They, they, they don't really care um, about a lot of the sort of day-to-day sort of relations with um, traditional allies in the United States, especially in the EU and Canada, that uh, the Biden administration will. So they'll just be more more communication about things, you know, in, in the present day about travel across the border, about how vaccinations are going to be handled, about a whole range of things that even in normal times would be difficult and now are quite pressing. Um, the other point is that I think the other crucial person that you're going to hear a lot about uh, in Canada over the next couple of years is Anthony Blinken. He is almost certainly going to be the Secretary of State for Biden. Um, the Secretary of State is the you know usual person who represents the U.S. abroad and especially to allies. And Blinken is um, you know he's a very known commodity. He is a, you know he's a, he's a veteran of the Obama administration, as many uh, Biden appointees will be. And compared to the Trump years, he'll be much more friendly with and engaged with Canada and the EU. That's an interesting side of this, and I. I, I... I'm fascinated to see how this is going to roll out uh, because there was almost, uh, I, I don't know if the right word is a paranoid attitude towards international relations uh, once Donald Trump took over. Basically, he didn't trust any other leaders in the G7. Uh, basically said that, you know, you guys have been leaning on us way too long and, and yeah. you know, the, the, the holiday is over. I, I'm getting the sense from uh, President-elect Biden's comments uh, at this stage, Professor, that he, he has, I think, much more of an understanding of the role the United States plays in international relations and, and the lead role they can play in a lot of the, 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 the politics that are going on, especially to do with G7 and, and, and NATO and things of that nature? Yes. I mean, G7 and NATO, I think maybe even NATO especially, yeah. uh, Biden is a more traditional U.S. president, traditional since the end of the Second World War, in understanding the U.S. as being, um, you know, powerful insofar as it is cooperative with its friends and allies. That's a, you know, it's a kind of traditional uh, or a dominant American perspective uh, Trump was really, really different. And the way to think about that is that Trump was far more in a aggrieved sense of Americanism, of American supremacy and superiority that could manifest either in isolationist or very aggressive uh, ways. Whereas a Biden administration, like an Obama administration, um, frankly, like, a, like a, either the Bushes or Clinton, will be more predictable. They'll be more collaborative with Canada and the EU. Um, and with NATO, I would say, too, they will be more, I think the word is pragmatic when it comes to um, countries like Iran and Cuba. Um, there, uh, Blinken was actually a part of the Obama administration's, what they saw as one of their big achievements, which is the Iran nuclear deal, which the Trump administration pulled out of. Um, you know, it's not like Blinken is, you know, more friendly to uh, necessarily uh, Iran or to Cuba for that matter. But they're less ideologically hostile and they're less they're more interested in pragmatic solutions. 
Talk to me a little bit about uh, some of the players here. And I, I know we want to talk about this from the Canadian perspective, but, but you're, I think you're absolutely right, Professor. I mean, the, the, the people that are in, going to be in that cabinet and in the, the Biden administration are going to have a huge impact on, on that relationship, uh, not just with Canada, but, of course, internationally with some of those others as well. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that a lot of the people that we've talked to here are uh, from the, the – well, the, I think the phrase you use and a lot of people use it is the Obama administration. And I said, with the exception of John Kerry, who, of course, was the, the Secretary of State under the Obama situation, in the second term anyway, uh, a lot of these guys were junior players that have, I guess, been elevated. In other words, that they've gone up from the minors to the, to, to the head of, of these yep. departments. And, and, and Blinken is certainly one of those, isn't he? He absolutely is. So Blinken is um, an interesting character in the sense that he's, he's sort of like um, uh, a kind of, he's very much like Biden in the sense that he's the moderate of moderates. He understands the U.S. as being you know, a super, the superpower of the world, but he's not interested necessarily, he's definitely not interested in bullying friends and allies. So that, that just, that's kind of out. He's quite right down the middle when it comes to questions of political economy and trade. Um, you know, he'll be quite easy to deal with in that way from a Canadian perspective, frankly, from a liberal or a conservative government. I mean, that, that I don't think it really would matter that much um, because of the day-to-day stuff would be handled by a guy like Blinken. You brought up Kerry, Kerry is going to be the presidential special envoy on climate, mm-hmm. um, which is a big job. And so you're going to be hearing a lot from John Kerry as well. There I see a very um, natural point of uh, not just, you know, sort of um, uh, uh, coexistence, but real collaboration between uh, a Biden and Trudeau administrations. Because Kerry, a very known commodity, he is going to be a, he's going to be a major figure in this administration because he's going to be heading up the climate uh, initiatives and um, for the Biden for the Biden administration, to some extent for Trudeau, I suppose as well. Climate is the real winning argument because the Democratic Party in the United States is an extremely diverse and um, uh, divided party. It's m- it's much less ideologically united than the Republicans are, and so the one thing they can agree on in the Democratic Party on the progressive and moderate side is considerable re-engagement with uh, the climate crisis. So you'll see a lot of John Kerry, uh, and you'll see a lot of Anthony Blinken. This is almost a reintroduction of relationships that existed uh, before Trump took over, though, isn't it? I mean, yes. uh, Kerry, as Secretary of State, of course, had dealings with the Canadian government and, and with NATO and, and certainly uh, with the G7 in, in a number of different situations, as he did with some of the rather tricky and, and intricate things that are going on in the Middle East these days. Yep. Uh, so th- this is this is kind of like, let's let's pick up where we left off and try to undo some of the damage that's been done in situations like this, which I, I think, Professor, has got to be gratifying and encouraging to some of the other NATO members. Oh, definitely. I mean, so all of NATO, definitely the EU, are breathing a sigh of relief. You know, Britain is a little different now because of Brexit. Um, Trump administration is, was really, you know, I think much more friendly to and liked the idea of Brexit than a than a Biden type would. Um, but for the EU and for Canada, I mean, Biden is pretty much an overall good thing. Um, I will say there is one point of potential tension, which is that Mr. Trudeau mentioned um in his statement, um, quote, unquote, the need for freer trade. I'd be careful in this one. I mean, Biden is not going to put tariffs on Canadian uh, products. It's not going to be a kind of angry or vindictive type thing like that. But Biden is very aware that he has to have Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, those three states, which make up 40, 46 of the electoral counts, electoral votes, hang by a thread. They're like 1%, one way or the other, tips those those 
uh, states one way or the other. He has to have those states. Those states were really crippled, devastated by um, much of the trade policy of the 1990s, and they were definitely some of the losers in some of the of those trade deals. And so I think he's going to take a real effort to develop some new manufacturing capacities. I, my guess would be glass, because you have to have glass and, and different kinds of glass for the vials for vaccines uh, and other kinds of sort of medical technologies. They're going to make a real effort to have, uh, to make, you know, get some bread and butter uh, uh, wins for those three states. So, you know, I don't think Mr. Trudeau and the Canadian government have to worry about tariffs anymore. But, you know, some of the sort of free, fall, uh, um, let's say extreme, you know, neoliberal or, or uh, free trade ideas of the 1990s and early 2000s, I think that's over. I, I think there's going to be a real effort by Biden to develop and bring some jobs to those three states. And, and that's not really unique to Biden. I mean, I think we have to be pragmatic about this, about, you know, the relations, especially the trade relations between the two countries. Yeah. Uh, there are just as many protectionists in the Democratic Party as there are in the Republican Party uh, for that for that very reason. And and I, I, we couch that by saying that, as you mentioned, some of the border states that do have an awful lot of work to do with Canadian politics and Canadian economies, you know, Michigan, New York, and, and some of the states you've mentioned, uh, there's an understanding among those governors and, and others in, the, in the, those local politics that, that yes, we need to have the borders open for various things, but there's a certain sense of protectionism, especially as both of us are going to be coming out of this uh, this pandemic recession that we're in right now, and we're going to be looking for some extra help, and 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 both governments are going to be cognizant of that, I would think. Yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree. I, I don't. I don't think it's a, going to be a source of conflict. I, I think it's going to be. It's a kind of a, agreement or consensus that you know um, there's a difference between a quote unquote protectionism that really tries to hurt other countries and a kind of protectionism, or let's call it developmentalism, in which, look, you're trying to do right by your people, and you're trying to get a sort of way where if you can stimulate or create some jobs that, ever, that are of pressing need, like, you know, becoming more autonomous when it comes to your public health policies, and that could be making masks, that could be making vials, it could be developing, um, you know, vaccine technologies, that's all to the good. And I think that that will be, but it's just important to note, I think there will be a bit of a change um and the kind of protectionism, quote unquote, that Biden is going to be about is more it's slightly more pro-union. Trump is very, very anti-union in terms of unionization. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's a different kind of approach to how you go about thinking about manufacturing jobs and jobs in general. Uh, I wanted to ask you about China. We could probably spend an hour talking about that and uh, yeah. and the change in relationships. Uh, it, it was, uh, I think, instructive to understand that uh, just after uh, Biden won the election, I guess the first phone call or one of the first phone calls he made was to, to the prime minister. Uh, and they talked about China and they talked about the two Michaels. Uh, uh, the, there's an argument to be made that it was the Trump administration that got us into this uh, Huawei mess with um, Meng and, and others. Uh Biden has talked about having a harder line on China, but he wants to do it collectively uh, with the help of NATO and the G7 and other nations like that. That's got to be good news for Canada, I would think. Yes, I, th- I think there will be. I-, I think, you know, overall, the U.S. Um, you know, understands that, 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 that China is um, a rising power, continues its economic uh, ascent. Um, you know, frankly, the Chinese government, the Chinese state, is probably coming out fairly strong after the disaster, the, the calamity of the pandemic, because they're in position to export um, a lot of their vaccines. Well, one, apparently one of their vaccines does not work very well or as well as hope, but they have others, and they can export those vaccines because their case numbers are so low. So there's an immediate way where China is really 
um, ascendant power. So the difference between Biden and Trump will be Biden will be much more multilateral. It'll be much more kind of like traditional Atlantic alliances, um, not always against China, but wary of China and sort of seeking out ways to block uh, Chinese influence in uh, global affairs and also, you know, sort of push back at China's um, uh, economic uh, power and others. And this is not uh, Joe Biden's first rodeo. I mean, you know, all his years in the Senate, of course, he worked on the Foreign Relations Committee and as vice president for eight years for Obama. I mean, he's uh, fostered and I think maintained an awful lot of international relations with a lot of the world leaders already. Yes, he's he's the ultimate known commodity. Um, I would say, you know, looking around the world, so Russia and China, these two countries are, um, you know, perceived by the, the sort of foreign policy consensus or foreign policy establishment in the U.S. as threatening, but in different ways. Um, I think the Biden administration will be considerably tougher with Russia. Um, they'll be much more cooperative in sort of confronting or at least sort of uh, at least sort of opposing in some ways China. Um, otherwise, you know, look for there'll be the traditional, you know, of course, um, strongly pro-Israel policy, but there will be some engagement with, there'll be real engagement with Palestinian leaders. Uh, there'll be, you know, much more engagement and regular work with the, with the European Union and Canada. Interesting times, and uh, we'll see what happens after Wednesday. And, of course, the relationship between the two countries is so very important. Uh, great to get your perspective on this, Professor. Thank you so much for the time. Stay well. My pleasure. Take care. Take care. That's uh, Professor Jason Opel from uh, McGill University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the more confusing and problematic things, I think, for an awful lot of people is uh, the announcement from the provincial government uh, earlier this week about the lockdown, first of all, and uh, and the stay-at-home order that many of us uh, are, are trying to get some clarity on right now. Uh, there's a, a, a lot of misinformation and I think some misunderstanding about that. I know the Premier got pretty defensive about it the other day and said, you know, how much more clear can we be? Stay home. That's all there is to it. But uh, there are going to be occasions where we need to go out. Are we contravening that rule if we do that? Well, uh, I think we've got a bit more clarity than we did earlier this week when the government first made the announcement. Uh, Jeff McGuire is the executive director for the Ontario Association of, of Chiefs of Police. And uh, he says that uh, one thing they won't be doing is pulling people over to ask where they're going. Are police officers going to be going up and down the street and stopping people as they walk and pulling cars over and, are you essential, what are you doing? We don't have any of those powers. Quite frankly, I'm glad we don't because we weren't looking for police state-type situations. So I think where you're going to see the, the major portions of the enforcement will be the continuing of the big things, the gatherings, the car rallies, the parties and storage units. And on and on it goes. That's a pretty long list. Uh, so how is this going to roll out and, and what can and can't we do? Uh, I want to bring uh, Superintendent Will Mason into the discussion. Uh, Superintendent Wilson is with Hamilton Police Service. Uh, Superintendent, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Uh, and uh, what has been a confusing time for some, uh, and I guess one of the biggest problems we had is when governments oftentimes make policy announcements like this, uh, we've heard from a, diff- a number of different police services and from the chiefs of police that said, well, wait a second, we don't even have all the details on this. And that really puts, uh, I think, police services at a bit of a disadvantage. But that was a couple of days ago. Is there a clearer picture for you? now will yeah uh thanks very much for having me on bill i appreciate it uh yeah we've we've had a chance to take a look through uh the legislation and i mean we are used to this legislation uh sometimes comes out quickly and and we have to adapt uh and take a look at it and we want to make sure that we've reviewed it with our legal department to ensure we've got uh the right 
uh, interpretation of everything and to make sure that we uh, are in, you know, applying the legislation appropriately and properly. And we've had an opportunity to do that and been able to get some messaging out to our members uh, to assist them uh, in their duties as required under this. I, I know that I saw a couple of things on social media that uh, suggested, well, yeah, now they've got the police involved in, in uh, pandemic uh, protocols. And we, you guys have been in it up to your neck anyway for large gatherings and things like that. I mean, as things have happened and people have sometimes ignored uh, and contravened some of these orders, uh, well, the, the car rally in Ancaster comes to mind. Uh, I mean, you, you, you guys are on the scene and you ha- that's, that's your job. That's, that's part of the role, isn't it? Uh, it, it is, Bill. You're quite correct. And uh, we've been doing this since March uh, on and off. And, and we recognize this is very much a, a public health crisis, but we have a role to play uh, in assisting uh, in enforcing some of this legislation. And, uh, you know, the the best way I, I think most average people want to see the pandemic end uh, want to see life go back to normal, and, and the best way that they can do that is is to stay at home and and to comply as much as they possibly can. And obviously, as you mentioned, that off the top, there's there's a number of means within the legislation to allow you to go about and do the things that you need to do. But where you can uh, stay home, we would we would echo the call of the government to to uh, have people do that and and help bring the pandemic hopefully under control. Can we assuage, I guess, a feeling, and, and again, something that I've seen floating on social media, uh, that uh, that this is going to be a proactive situation by police services, and situ- that, uh, and, and I, we heard the comment from uh, from uh, Chief McGuire, of course, from the Association of Chiefs of Police, saying that we don't want to do that, let alone we don't, we're allowed to. Uh, you know, we're, we're not in that sort of a state. I don't. Some people just need to have this incorrect characterization of the role of police in, in, in a situation like this or in the greater situation of how the pandemic and, and some of the rules that are there uh, have to be enforced. Uh, that, that you know, you, you're responding to concerns and requests uh, and complaints in situations like that, but you don't go pounding on doors and looking in windows. No, and you're absolutely correct. We don't. We, if, if we get a call, we'll go and we'll assess the situation and we'll see what we're presented with at the time and we'll take the appropriate action. Um, this is, as you mentioned, some of the bigger gatherings and as Chief McGuire mentioned there, the large parties, uh, things like that that are very obviously uh, not, uh, not necessary um, and are against the rules, those are, those are things where we're going to be looking take enforcement action but no we're not going to be out there arbitrarily stopping individuals inquiring where they are going that said uh, as we saw the last time when we were in the midst of the lockdown due to the lower traffic volume on the street we definitely saw some increased speeding and things like that we have a new traffic safety enforcement unit Uh, they are very much going to be out there enforcing all the regular laws that we do enforce in relation to speeding and reckless driving and careless driving and those type of things so it's not to say that we won't be pulling people over we definitely will be we just won't be pulling them over for the purpose of finding out uh, where they're going and, and what they're up to in relation to the pandemic yeah, what's up with that? I mean, okay, so you're right. I noticed that in the first wave last spring as well. Uh, is it because there are fewer cars on the road, and they figured that that's the gives them license to be able to you know use this as a speedway? I I, I can't speak to all of that, but that's 
that's the strong suspicion we have is that there's just that much less traffic on the road and, and they see the opportunity and, uh, and want to speed through some of the neighbourhoods and obviously we want to make sure that that's not happening and, and we have an obligation. Uh, traffic safety is one of the things we often hear about uh, from the public and uh, as I said, we have a new traffic safety unit. They are out there uh, and they will be enforcing all those traffic safety laws. Well, we found that to be the case. I mean, as you know, well, over a number of years now, we've done the Chiefs' town halls, uh, and I think this dates all the way back to, to Chief Robertson and Chief Mullen and, and of course, uh, Chief DeCare and now Chief Gert, uh, who, who do these on a monthly basis. And invariably, you know, we basically open it up and say, look, anybody can ask anything about law enforcement and about that, that sort of thing. Ninety percent of the questions we get are about traffic control, about speeding and stop signs and things of this nature. Uh, it's it's public safety, really, and that, that, that's right at the top of the list for, the, for what you're, you're staff do yeah no absolutely and and we're out there enforcing that uh the traffic safety piece on a regular basis and that is one of the primary calls uh calls we get uh from the community and one of the primary concerns we hear about and we hear about it when we do our business planning uh every few years as well um loud and clear is there a maybe you could add some clarity to this too because i got a lot of questions about this over the last couple of days about enforcement uh and and the distinction between what police service will do in vis-a-vis enforcement versus what bylaw officers of any different locality municipality would do uh you know who responds to what and 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 in what fashion do they do that maybe you could add some uh, some clarity to that yeah, absolutely. So uh, we do work closely with municipal, uh, our municipal bylaw partners um, to help ensure compliance. Some of what they will do is in relation to business compliance um, and uh, things of that nature. Uh, we will often respond to sort of some of the larger parties, the larger gatherings, things like that. Uh, that would challenge bylaw in terms of uh, the the staffing complement they have and the equipment they have. Uh, we're a little better equipped to deal with that, but but certainly we we work in close collaboration with them, uh, and and we're great community partners with them, and we're thankful that we have them to assist us and vice versa. Is it is a business as usual, uh, I, which may sound a little naive, but I mean, because we understand there's the pandemic and it's putting a lot of pressure on, on just about every facet of our society, including uh, police services, of course, their staffing situations, I'm concerned. But doing the work that you should be doing and want to be doing on a daily basis anyway, you mentioned traffic control is certainly part of that. Uh, I know that uh, even, you know, the ride programs, which a lot of people associate with the holiday season, uh, you do those on a, on a pretty regular basis in different areas of the city uh, from time to time as well. I, are you are you comfortable as a police service that, that that you can be where you need to be here and at the same time look after what have actually turned out to be extra duties? Yeah, uh, thanks, Bill. We we definitely have what we would refer to as business continuity. Um, we want to make sure that uh, you know while the the pandemic is going on, we get all of those regular calls for service that we always get. Uh, and we're well positioned to take care of all of those things. We've made some modifications. Uh, we do have some member, we do have some people working from home just to reduce the volume of people, but those are sort of back of house staff uh, that support us in our daily work. But we are a 24 seven operation. When people pick up the phone and they call 911, they want to know that the, have confidence that the police are gonna show up and, and they can have that confidence. We absolutely are going to. Um, and, uh, in terms of responding to crimes of various natures, absolutely, we're still able to do that. 
The, I will mention the, our stations, our PSOs, are closed except for emergencies. We've directed people, if you go to our website, you'll see uh, a means to do most everything that uh, you're normally able to do at the police station through a number of online methods or by calling us and contacts on phone. And that's just to help reduce the number of people coming into our building, reduce the opportunity for transmission. But as you mentioned, a number of uh, the regular calls that we get, traffic accidents, traffic safety, um, crimes of violence, break and enters, some of those things do still happen, uh, as well as our response to mental health calls, persons in crisis, all those units still operate um, with some additional safety protocols, but we still operate. We're out there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah, the, 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 uh, those calls to the Coast Program, of course, that's uh, been so very successful. Uh, how do you how do you handle this? I mean, obviously, the protocol is different now for for face to face interactions uh, with those in the public, whether it's a traffic uh, control situation or something else like that. I, obviously, I guess masking and, and and things of that nature and social distancing uh, have have put a new spin on on exactly how officers can engage with the public in some situations. Yep, for sure. And we uh, we take the precautions that we need to. Our officers have uh, masks and other personal protective equipment that we can certainly wear, um, and we do that. Uh, and there's a number of protocols they have to follow in order to keep themselves safe and, and members of the public safe. So we've had to make some adjustments in that regard, but uh, rest assured we are still out there. And if, if you call 911 and you need the police, we will be coming. Uh, let's talk about that. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's the second time now that we've talked about calling 911. We've heard some stories, and I, I, obviously you guys catalog this sort of stuff, about a number of people that I guess are a little bit concerned or puzzled by some of the regulations that are coming down from the provincial government, uh, and they're calling 911 uh, to try to get some clarity on this. Uh, I, I, I thought after all these years, Superintendent, we wouldn't have to remind people, but I guess we do. Uh, 911 is for emergencies only, not for information. Yeah, absolutely, and you're quite right, Bill, and I, I thank you very much for bringing that up. Uh, we had about uh, 90 calls uh, yesterday through our wow. non-emergency line, so the, the non-emergency, not 911 calls, fortunately, but our, our non-emergency line, we still do get a lot of calls for service through that non-emergency line, um, and a lot of those were uh, just inquiries about I was wondering if I am still allowed to do this or I was wondering if my neighbor is allowed to do this. Uh, those calls are better served by calling 546-CITY, so the City uh, Customer Contact Center. Um, I'll give you that number again. It's 546-CITY, uh, and they are prepared to provide some information, some clarity on that. As well, you can go online. People can go online, access the uh, legislation, read through it, um, and, and answer a lot of those questions for themselves. But we would encourage you, please don't call. We, we do not have the capacity um, to handle uh, sort of those what-if type questions that people might have uh, through our 911 center. We need to keep those lines free uh, for those bona fide emergencies so that we can get our officers out to the people who, who need our help.
Well, maybe the first clue should be that if you do call that number and they answer it, the first thing they say is 911, what is your emergency? They don't say, what would you like to talk about? I mean, it's, it's, there's a specific need for that. Uh, and the concern, obviously, as we've talked about in the past, is if, if you're tying up that line, somebody else that actually might need that assistance immediately is, is waiting. So, you know, it's, it's just the wrong thing to do. Uh, and there are other, as you mentioned, numbers to do that. If you want to find out whether or not you can go to the grocery store, uh, and you're not going to get picked, yeah, go ahead and call 546 City and get that information. But we need to keep the 911 open as a priority line. No, yeah, no, absolutely we do. And, and we, we appreciate that people uh, have confusion around, uh, around the orders and around the legislation and, and might even have some anxiety around that. So we're sensitive to that for sure, but we do want to keep those, not, those emergency lines free for uh, bona fide emergencies. We hear about the stories, the car rally comes to mind, of course, from a few months ago now, uh, and others, uh, and, and those are the ones that obviously make headlines. But, I mean, on, a, on a, an overall basis, though, Superintendent, it's been a year now, sadly. This is our second lockdown uh, with the pandemic. Are you finding compliance has improved over the last little while? I think for the most part, other than some, uh, other than some you know, brief spikes we've seen here and there, for the most part, people are pretty compliant. We, uh, we're not finding a lot of or being overwhelmed with uh, calls for people uh, for those situations, as you mentioned, those sort of watershed situations um, that, are out of, that are sort of out of control. Well, we will track this and continue to go on with this. And obviously, as we get information about how this is going to roll out from the government, uh, we'll certainly pass it on to our listeners, too, to make sure that there is some clarity on this. Uh, Superintendent Will Mason, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Will, uh, stay safe, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks very much, Bill. I appreciate you. Great talking with you. Superintendent Will Mason from uh, Hamilton Police Services. No, they're not going to knock on the door and say, where are you going? What are you out on the street for? Uh, and, And I understand the misunderstanding because initially the province wasn't very clear on that and we have told you stories about some other jurisdictions in australia new zealand where they did get very very hands-on about this and they did bring the hammer down uh you know we heard stories anecdotally when when they had the lockdown in australia a few months ago now that uh, that the the police or byline in either particular situation would stop you and say why are you walking around the corner uh, you know, what are you doing with your dog? Get back in the house. And, and it, it's, it, that was then, and this is now. That's not what's happening here. And we need to be very clear about that. This is a different situation altogether. You want to rock, walk around the block and get some, some exercise? Knock yourself out. You want to walk the dog? Good idea. The, the dog needs it, too. Uh, you want to go for a walk around to the park in one of the walking tracks? That's fine, too. You need to go to the grocery store? These are, these are what they're saying. This is okay. All right, nobody's going to stop you. You're not going to see the flashing lights behind you saying, what are you doing at, at Fortino's? Uh, it's okay to do that. Uh, this is, let's, but, but let's be smart about this. And I know that they always say just use some common sense. It's not really a bad idea uh, to put things in perspective like that. And for heaven's sakes, don't call 911 if you have questions. Call 546-CITY, and uh, they'll direct you to the proper department, okay? As uh, Superintendent Wilson just said. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.